Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I can feel in the room, what? Not X. <laughs> As you heard, next week we're launching a Sunday school teaching series called Legacy Living. You've seen the insert in your bulletin. Please come out next week and go to that 9.30 all-church gathering to hear more. More details about what this Legacy Living series is all about. This morning, uh, for my part at least, I would like to get the ball rolling, or as you'll see in a minute, get the stone rolling, um, on uh, what Legacy Living is all about. And I'm going to try to do that this morning by talking about something called Standing Stones. I don't know if you are familiar with Standing Stones. Standing Stones is uh, one of the big biblical metaphors or pictures. And um, you can see a rough outline of my sermon this morning. I'm going to take a look at the what, why, where, who, and how of Standing Stones. Don't worry, it's not as long as it looks. And then um, I'm going to leave um, the application portion of this sermon largely to you, to you and your Sunday school teachers beginning next week and then throughout 2007 to really apply uh, the teaching from God's Word today in uh, several, all different areas of your life, really. And so um, this message this morning, if there's a difference between teaching and preaching this one's going to be more teaching um, and maybe a little bit less preaching. Now, what are the difference between the two? We could spend an hour on that, I suppose. I always think the best teaching preaches and the best preaching teaches. But um, this one's going to lean teaching a little bit more, giving you tools to put into your legacy living toolbox that you can unpack throughout 2007 and use. Um, not just on others, but on yourself too. So we'll let you do the application part this morning. But um, who knows? I may preach a little bit along the way as well. Sometimes I can't help it. <laughs> First, what in the world is a standing stone? In Hebrew, standing stones are called masabot. Practice your Hebrew with me this morning. Say masabot. I didn't even have to spell it on the screen for you. Very good. Masabot is two or more standing stones. Singular, one standing stone is a masaba. Say masaba. One standing stone is two or more standing stones are masabot. Very good. And that Hebrew word or words, masaba, masubot, comes from the Hebrew verb that means to set up. And that's basically what a standing stone is. It's, it's any stone that is intentionally set up in a way that does not naturally occur in nature. Any such stone turned on its end or stacked on each other, that's a masaba, a standing stone. Ancient cultures in particular, were nuts about standing stones. They were standing stone fanatics. They set up stones in unnatural ways all the time. If you do any hiking in the near and Middle East in particular, 
you can find literally tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of standing stones all through the Near and Middle East in particular. You're looking at some examples of standing stones found around the world. Some of you, I'm sure, recognize that very recognizable Stonehenge, right? And then in a minute, we'll have those fun little guys from Easter Island among the slides. Oh, there they are, as if on cue. Look at that. Those are standing stones. Those are Masabot. Someone took those stones and set them up in a peculiar way. Those stones don't occur like that in nature. They set them up in a way so when you see them, anyone sees them knows, hey, someone put that stone up that way. Those are masabot or standing stones. Standing stones can be very small or they can be absolutely massive like most of these. They're small and large ones all over the biblical world. Often the big ones, the really big ones that weigh many, many tons sometimes, they're the ones that are set up by a city or a community. Often those stones in particular would take years to set up. And not only to set up, but also to go and get. <laughs> Communities would invest enormous amounts of resources, time and money to locate, to push, pull, drag these stones from miles and miles away so they could set them up in a particular spot. That's what a standing stone is. A stone that is set up in an unusual way, often at great time, effort, and expense. Well, the what questions of life often beg the question, why? I mean... Did these ancient people simply have nothing better to do than to set up these stones? Could they use the 20th century American advice, hey, you know, you guys need to get a life spending all this time setting up these stones. Why hundreds of thousands, perhaps, of these stones around the world? In a word, the answer is witness. The ancients would set up standing stones as a witness very often as a witness to their gods. If they believed one of their gods caused an important event or provided a great benefit to the community, one of the first things they would do is they'd set up a stone. If a covenant or treaty was signed between nations or even individuals, they'd set up a stone to sort of declare that agreement and invoke the witness of the gods. And so the stones were a testimony to what the gods had done. Now, ancient Israel was no stranger to the practice of standing stones. God's people used standing stones as well. These masabot are mentioned frequently in the Bible. Jacob, Israel himself, right, set up standing stones at least four times always after something significant happened in his life. You take a look in Genesis 28. Jacob is running for his life from Esau. We've just read that Esau says, you know, I'm a little tired of Jacob. As soon as dad dies, I'm going to kill him. Well, fortunately, his mother Rebecca must have heard Esau saying that. He warns Jacob, 
And Jacob is running for his life from his brother. During the night, Jacob has a dream. Many of you will be familiar with this dream, I'll bet. It's that one with that stairway to heaven. Remember? With those angels ascending and descending. Well, in that dream, God renews His covenant with Jacob. Renews His promise. In the dream, He says, Jacob, I want you to know, as you're running for your life, I want you to remember... My promise still holds. I'll give you land. I'm going to give you descendants. You and your descendants will be a great blessing to all the nations. And Jacob, I promise I will never leave you. I will be with you wherever you go. Jacob wakes up. Guess what he does? He takes the stone he was using as a pillow. Interesting choice of something to use as a pillow, but... Apparently stones made good pillows back then. He takes the stone he was using as a pillow that was holding his head that he had his dream in, looks around, i got to have a stone. How about that one? Sets it up. Sets up a standing stone to mark the spot. The spot that God again renewed His amazing covenant and promise. Can you imagine... Years later, in fact, we can read of years later, Jacob comes back to the very spot, perhaps with his kids, or maybe even his grandkids by that time. Can you imagine the hunt for that stone? You know, Jacob, all right, kids, you know, I put that thing here somewhere. (laughs) You know, let's look for the stone. And they hunt for the stone. They hunt for the stone. And then they find the stone. Maybe Jacob's grandkids, you know, Grandpa! What's up with that stone? And Jacob has the opportunity to tell the story of the stone. Several centuries later, the people of Israel are at Mount Sinai. You remember God has just delivered them from Egypt, the world power at that time. And He's renewed His covenant again with them through the giving of His Word, the law. And guess what? What's the first thing Moses does after writing down everything the Lord has said to him on Mount Sinai? He sets up 12 stones, of course. One for each tribe in Israel as a testimony to the covenant that God has just made with His people. After Moses comes Joshua. Seven times in the book of Joshua. God's number. Seven times. We read that Joshua sets up standing stones. One of the most familiar ones to us, I suppose, might be right after the Israelites crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Remember? It's a pretty big deal. Yes, they're realizing the promise of land. After crossing the Jordan, what does Joshua and all Israel pause to do? Take a wild guess. (laughs) They set up standing stones taken from the Jordan Riverbed as a testimony to God keeping His promise of the land before them. Later on, in the same book of Joshua, the people had fully conquered the land. Joshua challenges the people, choose this day whom you will serve. Remember? And the people passionately respond, we will serve the Lord, they say. What does Joshua do to witness that renewed promise between God and His people? He sets up a stone. You get the idea. 
Why standing stones? God's people set up stones to witness what God had done. That's just a partial answer to the why question. Like, like so many why questions, when you get caught in that like time warp continuing with a little child who keeps asking why, how many of you have had that delightful experience? But why, but why, but why, but why, right? This why question, too, I think begs at least one more why. Why set up stones to witness what God had done? I mean, what's the point of all that? Joshua gives us as, as plain an answer as any in Joshua 4. He says to those 12 men that he had appointed to set up the standing stones after crossing the Jordan, he says to them, These standing stones are to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them. Tell them the story of these stones. Tell them that the flow of the Jordan itself was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. And that's precisely how this whole standing stones system worked in ancient biblical cultures and times. People from around the world would wander by these odd stones set in unnatural ways and ask questions like, what the heck is that? (laughs) What is up with those stones? And an opportunity to tell the story of the stone was born. Why standing stones? To witness to others who come after and behind, both from within God's community and outside, to witness that God had done something here. You probably already noticed a bit about the wear of standing stones. Specifically, Standing stones would be placed at or near the place where the God event happened. Place was and still is very significant to Eastern cultures in particular. Often when you read the text in your Bibles, if you do what I do, you get to the long litany of where they are or what the names of all these cities are. And that's the eyes glaze over time. He's kind of... Let's get through those cities and start where I can understand again. Do yourself a favor. Um, Pay attention to where this God event is happening. Chances are, I won't say always, but more often than not, um, it seems to be, in my opinion, and many with me, that God is choosing to include in the story the where because there's a connection to that place. Either to something that happened before or something that happened after. And there's meaning to be derived from even the place where something is happening. Jesus Himself was a master of place. Um, Those of you who in a few weeks will come with me to Israel, um, one thing that I want to emphasize and show to you um, as far as Jesus, this great teacher, is concerned, will do some of His teachings where He is when He's taught. And you will be amazed, I think. It was a revelation to me that these words from Jesus just didn't fall from heaven in a vacuum. You know, 
The stuff he's talking about is like right there. And, that, and it's so Jewish. It's so Eastern. It's Western too. It's so effective teaching that as you're talking about, you want to look at, you know, and Jesus did that all that, you know, take this plant. I mean, he does that all the time. Place and where you are. What am I going to do with this now? Place and where you are is so important in the text. So the where of the stone is important. There's more to the where than putting it right at the place where God acted, especially as it concerns God and His people. What more? God came to Abraham, you remember, in Genesis 12, and promised him, among his promises, God said to Abraham, all the people on earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. And of course, as Christians, we know ultimately that the ultimate fulfillment of that promise that Abraham would be a blessing to everyone would be through Abraham's greatest descendant, Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus the Christ. Amen? But on the way to that ultimate fulfillment of that blessing in Christ Jesus, there's some 1,000 years of witness that God had in mind for His people and an intent that Israel would be a blessing to others leading up to the culminating event, of course, in Jesus Look at what God says to His people Israel in the book of Isaiah. Israel, God says, you are my witnesses. You are the witnesses that I am God, He says to them. Sometimes we Christians get the idea that we're the first ones to be charged by God to be His witnesses. The Bible says otherwise. The very first ones God chose to be His witness was Israel. That's why He chose them, you could even say, to be His witness. I mean, the very fact that they made it as a nation is an incredible witness of God. They escaped Egypt, for heaven's sakes. Defeated the army of Pharaoh. Defeated many stronger Canaanite armies. You know, this... This ragtag group of nomad shepherd slaves suddenly are this significant and great nation. Just seethes with, boy, it must have been God for such an odd thing to happen. And then, look where God put them. Look where He put His new nation of Israel. There's some interesting teaching out there that suggests that God kind of, you know, hid His people off in a place so the world would leave them alone. So they could just kind of barricade themselves in sort of a fortress mentality and work on their relationship with God. Because, after all, the witness of God doesn't come until the New Testament. Boy, I beg to differ with that teaching. Historians have nicknamed the land of Israel the land between. As you look at the maps on the screen, it's easy to see why. Israel was a connector. It connected 
all the known world of her day. Three continents, Africa, Europe, and Asia. Israel found herself right at the belly button, right at the navel of the world of three entire continents. The mighty Via Maris, which means the way of the sea, that main trade and travel route of the world connecting north and south and east and west, ran right through Israel. Well, what a coincidence. Look at what God did. He formed a nation out of a bunch of nobodies. He commanded them, be obedient, love, be an obedient witness of who I am. Then He took them and He put them right in the middle of everything. Now, why do you suppose he did that? I think one strong possible answer at least is, so people traveling down that main trade route would come in contact with them. They'd see them. And they would ask questions like, what in the world is that? What's up with those Israelites? What's up with those stones? And if God established Israel here, you know, if He established Israel here today in our neck of the woods of Denver, Colorado, do you know where He would establish that nation? He would plant that nation smack dab in the median of I-25. That's exactly what Israel was to her day. It all had to go through there. You couldn't go to the south because of the, uh, the desert meant death. That fertile crescent. You guys are like, oh yeah, I remember that from school, maybe. It arched over that desert, came down to Israel for Egypt. How many of you remember Herod from Christmas? Remember what Herod did? Herod didn't like it that some of the northern roads through Asia Minor was missing his kingdom. So he made it even more intensely necessary to go through Israel by building that seaport at Caesarea. Now everybody had to come there. I mean, brilliant move by this megalomaniac madman, Herod. But the point is, Israel was right in the thick of it. God formed His nation, commanded them to be an obedient witness, and put them right in the middle of everything. So people passing by would say, like you would, I think, if you saw a nation in the median of I-25, you know, what in the world is that? And this is where I've got in my notes the heart of the matter of standing stones begins. This amazing, sweeping, biblical illustration of standing stones. And I'm sure you can see the wheels turning. Many of you have already been making connections along the way this morning to our life and witness, but let me try to bring it together. God's great plan of our witness, His great plan to reach the world is that we are the standing stones. We're His standing stones. God took us and found us as we've more or less occurred in nature. And He set us up on end, <laughs> metaphorically. He set us up in an unusual way. And He put us in places where we're noticed so we could be a witness to others that He is God. We're the stones, not the rolling stones. 
Yeah, you know, it's pretty much 35 and over understands that one. Because Rolling stones? Or the standing stones. Look at what God says to us through the Apostle Peter. As you come to Him, Jesus, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices accepted to, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Just like ancient Israel, God places us, His church, in the middle of it all. He places us in the median of I-25. He sprinkles us like salt into the dung of the world. He shines us like light into darkness. He sticks us right up in there. Right up against it. In a world that's wild and dangerous and wonderful and crushing all at once. And He puts us there, promising to be with us and to never leave us. And He commands us, He begs us, He implores us, He pleads with us, be standing stones. Be the witness that I am God. We're to be living Standing stones. God takes us, sets us up on end in a way that does not occur in nature. When we are in Christ, the Bible says, we are transformed. Transformed into something different, right? Otherwise, the verb transform doesn't, you know, if I have a pencil, if I have a microphone, <laughs> see, that's what Jesus would do. He says, I try to be like Jesus. If I have a microphone, I say, this microphone is now being transformed into a microphone. That's not what transform conveys, right? Transform. This microphone is now being transformed. I can use it again. This plant. Is there a difference? The Bible tells us that when we are in Christ... We are transformed. We are transformed into something different in a way that stands out, in a way that is not microphone. In a world filled with microphones. In a way that someone who's familiar with seeing more or less microphones only passes by and sees a plant. How long can I keep the metaphor going? We'll see. They're compelled, having seen microphone after microphone after microphone, to look at the plant they're compelled by curiosity to ask, what is up with that? That ain't microphone. Look what Peter says. He says, hey, you living stones, live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and do what? Glorify God on the day He visits us. So how? How can you be a standing stone? How can I be standing stone? How can we be a standing stone together? Boy, number one is be obedient. As soon as I throw that out there, I feel like, whoa. You know, it's a pet peeve of mine. More than a pet peeve. It's real hard 
in 21st century Western Christian church to talk about obedience. I don't know if you've had that experience. As soon as you say obedience, you feel these, you know, well, that's legalism. And we know legalism is a heresy. How dare you say we have to be obedient? It's all grace. That's legalism. Big difference between biblical obedience and legalism. Legalism, legalism is, boy, I'm going to obey. I need to obey to earn my salvation. That's legalism. And you're absolutely right to stay away from it because it's a lie. Biblical obedience is, I so desperately want to express my love to God for all He's done for me, and I so desperately share His heart for a world who is desperate for Him, that I'm going to obey. That's biblical obedience. Big difference. And we've got to find a way. My dear brothers and sisters, we've got to find a way to be able to preach, exhibit, and hold up the ideal of obedience without turning people off because, well, that's not grace. I often think, you know, we're so emphatic about grace as we need to be. As soon as we hear about obedience, we get so scared of the legalism that it might risk that we just like run away from it. And we end up where some of Paul's churches did, feeling that freedom from the law means freedom to do whatever I want. We need some balance. We need to be able to talk about obedience. And really, when we talk about obedience, we talk about love. Love and obedience in the Bible, virtually synonymous. Love and obedience in our culture, I don't know. You hear obey in the Bible, you can easily put love in there. It's the same push. If you love, of course you obey. Why do you obey? Because you love. The tie is that tight. Remember what Peter said? How is it to be a standing stone, you living stone? He says, live lives that are so good, so pure, so righteous, so winsome, so loving that people are going to be floored by it. And they can't help but ask, dude, what's the story of your stone? Or something like that. Why are you living your lives that way? Why on earth would you give up your rights and live your life for God and for others? Are you some sort of idiot? What's your story? And see... If we're not obedient, if we shy away from that hard task of looking to God and others rather than ourselves, if we feel a little too self-conscious conscious that we're looking like a plant when everybody else looks like a microphone, safer to look like a microphone, when we do that, when we choose to blend in, 
blend into the ungodly surroundings around us, guess what? No one's going to notice. Or even worse, if they know you're a Christian, they'll say, you know, this Jesus thing is no different than any of the other stones of pick any religion or unbelief you want. Because we look exactly alike. We're called to make a difference by being different. How can I be a standing stone, number one? By obeying God. Number two, when we are obedient, when we live our lives in peculiar ways, you're going to get the question. You will. You'll get the question, something like, why are you doing that? Or, what's your story? And here's point two. For the love of God, for the love of God, when someone asks you what's up with you, tell them! Now, it sounds so obvious and so easy. And maybe for you it is. It's not for me. It's not. You know, and I'm supposed to do this. But this is a safe place to do it. More or less. <laughs> Boy, but I'm out there and I'll see something going on and, you know, or someone will, a question will come up. Boy, I'm tempted just to avoid it because like, oh, I don't want to get into that. i got to go. Or, boy, for me to tell my story, some embarrassing things. Transparency has a lot to do with this. When you get the question, this is what kids are good at. That's why I love spending time with kids. They haven't learned yet that it's not cool to tell their story. <laughs> and I love that. Kids will tell you their story. Maybe that's part of what Jesus meant by we need to become like children. We need to be, have, a, have a childlike faith before we can even get into His kingdom. We need to tell our story. And if you get that story for the love of God, tell it. Not just in church. Not just when it's safe. Tell it out there in the median of life. You may have picked up an interesting thing about standing stones along the way this morning. There's no writing on them. Did you notice? As soon as you write on a stone, it becomes something called a stele. S-T-E-L-E. That's different. Maybe you have a sermon on stele sometime. But no, this one's on Masabah. A stele's not a standing stone. A standing stone, by definition, there's nothing on it. A standing stone needs a witness to tell its story. All of those stones you saw at the beginning... From Stonehenge, Easter Island, a place called Gezer in Israel, and others. And not just those, but thousands upon thousands more. In fact, the vast majority of all those standing stones I said that were standing around the world, do you know what? We don't know their stories. It's a complete mystery. Why? Because at some point, somewhere... Someone stopped telling the story. And the story of the stone, the story of what it was meant to witness, is lost. Forever. We're left to guess. 
Oh, may that never be said about us. May that never be said about the church of Jesus Christ. Keep telling the story. Keep telling the story of those great biblical stones. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Keep telling David's stone story. He even had a real stone story to keep telling. Remember? And what about the stones of Esther and Ruth and Isaiah and Jeremiah? Do you know what? They're all in heaven right now. And do you know what? They're depending on us. They're depending on us to keep telling the story of their stones. Keep telling the story of Peter's stone and Paul's stone. Keep telling the story of the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Don't let the story of those amazing stones fade away. And part of that story of all those biblical great stones, guess what? Is your story. Keep telling your story. Keep telling the story of what God has done for you. Keep telling the story of what the sacrifice of Jesus has meant in your life. Tell it. For the love of God, tell your story. Don't be shy. We don't have time to be shy. We're here for such a short while. A hundred years. Less, statistically. We're all going to be dead soon enough. Tell your story every chance you get. Because your story might be the only story pointing to God that they ever hear. Tell your story. Two PS's and then we'll close. My challenge for you, for me, for us this morning, one challenge I have is ask yourself a couple of questions. First question, who are your standing stones? Who's been a standing stone in your life? Has it been a, a, a parent? Has it been a teacher? Maybe a friend? Who's been a standing stone for you? Would you make a point this week to say thanks to those who have been standing stones to you? To those whose life and witness have encouraged you to follow God and to tell your story too? Standing stones at this church for me include the volunteer children's classes underneath us. <laughs> I tend to go long. And um, it's a great sacrifice of service and love that these folks stay in there and hang in there when the Spirit of God is working. So you and, and all of us can enjoy what's happening here with God. And I tell you, that selfless sacrifice of those people means a lot to me. And I hope to you too. Maybe when you run and get your kids in a minute, you'll tell them thanks. Thanks for being a standing stone. Thanks for what it must take. I mean, it's fun to be with kids, but you know. We all know. It's fun for a while. You know, they're missing out being here or doing something else so you can thank them. 
Second question I'd love for us all to ask, whose standing stone are you? Did you ever think of it that way? Who's been a, um, who would call you their standing stone? Have you been a standing stone for others? And if so, who is that other or others? And then how about this one? What would they say you stand for? It's a scary question to answer honestly. What would they say you stand for? For God? For self? For the Broncos? <laughs> or the Steelers? Do you stand for work? For money? Do you stand for love and, and compassion? What would they say the story of your stone is? If you're like me, when I dwell on that question, I come to the conclusion, man, my stone needs a little work. Fell over. Prop that thing back up. If you haven't been a standing stone, really, for anyone you could think of, how about making a point this week of picking someone that you're going to be a standing stone for? Not to crush them, but, you know. Pick someone and resolve, you know what? I'm going to be a light for them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to be obedient to God for them. I'm going to share my story at some point and pray for the opportunity where it seems like they want to hear it in love. I'm going to share my story about my life and what God has done for me in the hopes that it will encourage them. Would you do that this week with the stones that you have, with those who look to you as a standing stone, and if you don't, find someone? I think you could do that with one person this week. Second P.S. Next week, you know, we'll be hearing about legacy living. Many definitions of legacy out there. The shortest one I found I'm going to go with. <laughs> legacy means something passed on. Something passed on. What's your legacy? What's been passed on to you from others? What are you, right now, in the course of your life, passing on to those who come into contact with you and see your stone? What will you pass on after you've passed on? <laughs> what will you pass on long after you go? Long after you're gone? When people pass by your tombstone which is related to the whole standing stone concept. The tombstone's a standing stone, of course. I know it has writing on it. But it's related. What will they say about the story of your stone? An obedient life? A loving life? Lived for God and others in the name of Jesus Christ? Oh, pick that one. <laughs> May it be so. I look around the room and I know that there are amazing stories in here. Because you've told me, you've blessed me with them. Thank you. Those of you who have shared your stories, 
with me and with Jill. You've blessed us immeasurably. You are standing stones for us. It encourages us. And if the only thing that legacy living accomplishes is that we get together and we encourage each other with our stories in all different walks of life, if that's the only thing that happens, oh, praise God. Praise God, both for our sake as a community, as it lifts and encourages us, and for the sake of our witness, who looks at us and says, what is up with those stones at West Bowles Community Church? May God bless you as you strive to be standing stones, as you strive to live obedient, loving lives, and as you tell what God has done since time began, through and including you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you've asked us to be standing stones, living standing stones. You've put us in places where people notice us. You promised to be with us there in the great times and even in the tough times. You're right there holding us, encouraging us, helping us not to become too full of ourselves and helping us not to think too little of ourselves in Christ Jesus. You're right there. And, oh, Father, would you give us that humble courage that it takes to be different, to allow that transformation that has already occurred when we are in Christ to shine forth no matter what, so that people might look at us and experience us, be bowled over by love and say, what? What is up with that? By right, you shouldn't be loving me. You should be angry with me. But you love me nonetheless. Why would you do that? Oh, Father, for that question, for that opportunity, we pray for. And we ask, even this week, that we would look for and see those opportunities that you constantly have there to speak and to act the words of love, of love in Jesus Christ to others, that the world may know that you are a God, the only God. We ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus the Messiah, our Savior. Amen. If anyone would like to pray, there will be some up here to pray with you after this service and after every service every week. Enjoy the Colorado sunshine today. Who knows how long it will last. Thank you for coming. God bless you. We'll see you next week. God bless you.